This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents the American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theater. This seminar, performance. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars. Now, in their 24th year, they are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. These seminars offer a rare opportunity to hear a discussion of the realities of working in the theatre, from the performers, the producers, the playwrights, the directors, designers, casting directors, press agents, union and guild leaders, and the many other theatre professionals to whom these unique seminars have become so important. Since first introduced, more than 800 of Broadway and Off-Broadway's best have been seminar guests. And as many of you already know, the wing is more than the Tony Awards. These are given for distinguished achievement in the theater. However, we are an organization whose year-round programs are dedicated to serving the theater and the community with the goal of developing new audiences. And to achieve that goal, we have created audience development programs for students, like uh, Introduction to Broadway, which began five years ago and has enabled 60,000 New York City high school students to attend a Broadway show, and for so many of them, for the very first time. And through our newest program, Theater in School, Theater professionals, like those you will meet today, go directly into classrooms to work with and talk to students about working in the theater. In addition, we have our hospital program, which dates back to World War II and the Stage Door Canteen. Talk about volunteerism. It started a long time ago with the American Theater Wing. And from Broadway and Off-Broadway and the cabaret world, we have entertained more than 75,000 patients in nursing homes, veterans' hospitals, children's wards, and AIDS centers in the New York area, bringing the magic of theater to those who cannot get to the theater itself. We are proud of the work we do and happy for that wonderful working relationship we have with the theatrical community and are grateful to everyone who makes what the American Theater Wing does possible. We hope that you will enjoy and learn from today's seminar on the performance. And now, let me introduce today's panel. From your right, Paul Giamatti from The Three Sisters and Dana Ivey from Last Night of Ballyhoo and Nell Carter from Annie. And then there is George White, who is president of the Eugene O'Neill Theatre Center and an esteemed director both here and abroad 
and Brendan Gill, author, critic in residence at the New Yorker magazine and on the board of directors of the American Theatre Wing, and Willem Dafoe from The Hairy Ape and Andre De Shields from Play On and Joel Gray from Chicago. And now I will turn our panel over to our wonderful moderators and they will tell us all about working in the theater and how very simple it is. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Thank you, Isabel. I'm going to uh, start simply because I have to leap in uh, due to my sponsor and ask Willem a question about Eugene O'Neill's Harry Ape. Sure. Um, <clears throat> I, it, it's a must. But we were talking earlier, and, and I would like, uh, of course, in, in these particular uh, seminars, we talk a lot about how people get started in the business. We'll get to that. But um, one of the things that uh, struck me about what you said and, and, and reinforced something about dealing, when, when one deals with Eugene O'Neill as an actor, you deal obviously from the, from the inside the psychological crime, the character points of view, but you uh, brought up something else, which is the music of O'Neill. And I'd love to have you talk a little bit about that for a moment, because we are talking about music here as well today. And why not start with O'Neill? Sure. Um, well, first of all, uh, The Harry Ape, it was written in 1922, and it's not, um, I don't think it's a typical O'Neill. It's allegorical, and it's um, not, uh, he makes a big note in the beginning, and it's not a naturalistic play. Uh, one of the first things that I dealt with playing the role of Yank, the title character, was with the text, obviously, the text as music. It's, um, and I found that I didn't even approach it so much for meaning initially, as there were built-in rhythms that were very, very strong, and it's through the music that I found the meaning. And that's, uh, that struck me as very specific. Uh, that process was, uh, wouldn't be my normal process, let's say. And now I appreciate how beautifully uh, O'Neill writes in terms of music. What would be your normal process? Mm, I'd probably, I'm, I'm a person that prefers doing things as opposed to saying things, so I, I would probably respond much more to um, actions than I would to the text. Mm -hmm. But this is quite uh, verbose and there are these huge speeches and uh, in our production we perform them at a very quick clip. Um, Did you read anything about the original production in 22? There was, I remember there was an actor, Louis Wolfsheim, who played your role. Right. What did the critics make of that, I wonder? You got very, very, very mixed uh, reviews at the time because I think it was a very adventurous uh, play. It wasn't typical of the things that was being uh, that were uh, was being written at the time. He almost always got mixed reviews, which was a good sign. He I, was always doing something <laughs> new. I was, I was also saying to George, it was funny because in looking at the old uh, reviews from 1922, they said, "Okay, he's a good writer. We we got to give him that." But Clearly, he's a one-act playwright. Uh, <laughs> Anyone who's yeah. got four and a half hours at Iceman. The music, the music of dialogue is critical. I think one of the great things about Ballyhoo is that that, that that seemingly colloquial language is really extremely eloquent and very touching, and yet it doesn't have to be lyrical, and there's no sense of artifice in the language, and yet 
it is a kind of underlying music. Don't you feel that yourself yeah. in the play? Well, I do, and I think um, I'm a Southerner, and it's a Southern play, and I think we all know that people think of Southern, the Southern expression as being something very musical and lilting. And um, I, when I read things, I, I approach this text very much as Wilm did. I, I hear things when I, <laughs> when I read something. I sort of hear the way it should be, and then I can, uh, I can do the inflection and the rhythm and the timing that I feel is correct for what the character and the situation is. And it leads me back into the meaning in a play uh, like this. And some of my readings have changed because going from that initial um, understanding, which was correct, I have found a way to make it even more correct, uh, uh, deepening it. But the music was there first, mm -hmm. and, and it, it shapes the, the whole structure of the play. Everybody in the audience always wonders the degree to which the audience itself causes you to change your readings in a long-running play. Would you be affected by the audience's responses, or is something you're finding yourself? Sometimes I'm affected by the audience's responses, but I have to say, probably not in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> there are moments. There are moments in the play, um, in this, in Ballyhoo, that are. Um, I don't, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's very, very funny, but it also has some very poignant uh, things in it, and they're juxtaposed, juxtaposed very, uh, uh, in, as in life, very quickly. But sometimes the audience doesn't want to turn on a dime, and it makes it so. I've changed the way that I deliver certain things in order to try and stay in control of the audience so that they don't continue to laugh through things that they're meant to start having mm -hmm. feelings about. Yeah. And it's very hard to help to get the audience to go with me sometimes. And it's a constant sort of battle, but that's because of the way the text has got these things woven together. Brendan? I'm curious about uh, this whole idea of music uh, that Willem was talking about, because uh, five years ago I did a production of uh, Ibsen's When We Dead Awaken that Robert Wilson directed. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was an opportunity to work in a completely different way than anything I had ever done. Uh, it, was, it was all about music and structure and dance and movement, and the acting was like the last thing that you ever came to. <laughs> and uh, it was difficult, but ultimately uh, it was very exciting to be in a sort of a new form. And I knew that it spoke in the way that Robert Wilson who is a great theater artist, uh, meant for it to, spoke and, to speak, and we were all part of that expression. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was terrifying because it was, had nothing to do with anything that, that any of us had been trained mm -hmm. for. That would be even, more, excuse no. me, be even more remarkable because mm -hmm. what he was working with is a, is a classic play, but also a foreign play. Nobody ever translates Norwegian uh, well. Or Would you like me to tell you even worse? <laughs> Please, yeah. We performed it in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And that audience understood only Portuguese, and we were speaking English. Because Bob Wilson, uh, Rob Wilson is, is a great opera nut. He's a lover as well. So, I mean, we're obviously s sneaking up on all of you about music here, but I mean, to start from this way, I think is quite exciting because there is music in, in so much language that we tend to forget about. Is that, yeah, uh, well, this is curious to me because 
It seems to me that it is the music we are trying to hear in whatever effort we make in the theater, whether we're reading the play for the first time or speaking the words for the first time, or it's the first rehearsal, or as I did recently, work outside of my visible genre as a song and dance man. I had an opportunity to work at the Oasis Theater in the role of Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman. Quite a stretch for me. But the first thing I looked for was the music in Arthur Miller, the music in the life of Willie Loman, the music in me that matched this man's journey. Are well, you now, saying the music as, as a whole, or are you saying music, musicians, music? I'm not saying musicians, music per se, but I'm saying all of those elements that come together that make a score for an actor. That's how he approaches his work, I believe. Accents, They're rhythm, color, shadings, mm-hmm. volume, velocity. That's what, that's what the music in the a fabric, piece, you know, the fabric, about. the texture, mm-hmm. the composition. And that's all <clears throat> the mistake that people who don't understand how to play Shakespeare make is they think that there's a formal music in, 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 the, in the rhythm of the iambic pentameter, and they hit that, spoiling the whole intention. That was a formal structure for Shakespeare. Not necessary. So Arthur Miller is providing a, a, a subtle music, an, under, an yes. underneath music all yes. the time. And that's what we're talking about, about all three of these. So it makes it hard when you're accustomed to speaking a colloquial language, which is, however, musical, to go to Shakespeare, and we usually bungle that. We do. We call attention to it instead of ignoring it. And we bungle also Chekhov, mm-hmm. often, mm-hmm. often, which, I, which is not the case in Three Sisters. I want to get into that, Paul. Uh, in dealing with the translation, of course, you are always uh, doing so. Uh, how did you approach that? Because Chekhov has a very, very specific kind of rhythm, and he has a very, very specific kind of music. Well, it was a great, we had a new translation that Lanford yes, Wilson indeed. did, which was, I thought, a great translation. Because uh, what is tricky about him is that it seemed there's a seeming kind of banality to a lot of it uh, that bursts out in the kind of poetic things a lot. And uh, he captured that really well, I thought. Um, it's, it's tricky stuff to do because it can, it can seem, it can fall into a kind of banal, naturalistic, uh, form. And, and, and uh, there's a great deal of humor in Chekhov that yeah. people tend to over, yeah, completely miss. <laughs> yeah. Nearby. But yeah. And that's part of the music, too. Absolutely, yeah. And I think we captured that actually very yeah, well. I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. Now, what about a little secret music of yours? What is your secret music? Well, actually, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of mesmerized that uh, the, as you would say, legit as opposed to musical, you listen for the musical. Uh, the musical, uh, maybe it's a choice of semantics, but it tends to go out as if you're listening for a, basically what I would call a rhythm. Maybe that's my way of speaking. For instance, in Eight Misbehaving, we spent no time at first with the music. The original five people, uh, and this is, you know this is true, we locked the director, the producer, <laughs> and everyone out of the room. <laughs> and we watched tapes of uh, Fats Waller, and that is how we came to our interpretations. We watched and we read everything we could. We talked to his son, and that is, I mean, the things, we never saw anyone slither across the stage. That was him listening to Fats talk and watching people 
uh, from going through its life. So we went just the opposite, uh, where you listen for the music, we, we're going for what is this person about? So I can, you know, why was this man like that? How would she, like Honeysuckle Rose, um, that became like the song, I got the night we opened. It was like Ken Page and I were sitting there, and Ken said, I'm going to do anything with you. I said, I don't have anything with you either. And uh, one of our ladies, the original lady, was not there. So I said, he said, let's look through the book. Are we ready to, this is, this is true. This is how I, this behavior came together <laughs> before we let the director in. And we, <laughs> no, they did their work, but we, we went through this stuff and we picked what we wanted to do. And then we just said, then we came back and they told us what they wanted to do and it happened to be the same thing. But Honeysuckle Rose, the reason the staging and all that was that was because Ken and I just decided to, he was going to do what he thought Bats would do, and I was going to do exactly what a woman after Bats was going to do. And all of a sudden it became a hit, and they were like, uh oh, we have to do this every night. So it looks as though that those, those of us who get the text first look for the music. And then those of us who get the music first look for the story. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, now, Andrea, well, while you're talking wanna, about yeah, that. Excuse me. Yeah. I want to follow up on this. What, did, what was your background that could bring you to know what to bring into Honeysuckle Rose and how to be able to take it? What okay. did you call upon? Where did you, where where did you, did you learn that? Okay, I was very fortunate. I was at the public theater when Joe Papp was there. And I did... I, I'm, to all the young people, I don't know if you're ready to hear this, I was single-minded. I didn't want to get married, I didn't want your children, I didn't want to date you, I didn't want to eat with you. All I wanted was to learn how to do that step, to see every play, and that was during the time back when, when she was younger. Um, <laughs> when. And there was a show on, you would find a way to get backstage so you could watch this show. I would follow Elaine Stritch everywhere. I wanted to see Fiddler on the Roof. I would watch it. I personally like Greek tra tragedies. I like Euripides. That is something that I like to do. And I had a chance to do that. But I found the more I did that, the more people wanted you to sing. And that, that is a part that no longer is really the problem, but for a while that, that's all black people did in the theater. Uh, they don't really think you read, uh, that you know, you know, different um, works. I'm more interested in um, history than I am in a lot of other things. But it's up, okay, get, uh, we go to Hannigan, all right? When they asked me to do Hannigan, I saw several things, but I explained to them from the beginning, and unfortunately we did not do a press conference here, so the critics did not see what we were doing. In 1977, hitting a child was called punishment. In 1997, I saw it as child abuse, so all of that was taken out. So a lot of the audience was saying that, you know, um, they miss this. Well, if you want to beat a child, take your own home. I'm not hitting a child on stage or anywhere else. So that was gone. But that took me 
not trying to copy Dorothy, mm -hmm. but getting into what I thought Hannigan would do. I, in my mind, felt that a woman who has a sleazy mother who has slept around, and that's why her brother's another color, I had to think these things in my mind. So I, it's like he says, we went, we go different directions to get to the same, the same ending because I, um, I made up a whole story about how I felt Hannigan was, and I did not see Hannigan as a person who would hurt a child. I at still the, don't. At the beginning, uh, was Joe Papp good about letting you in the door? <laughs> yes, he was. Joe Papp was a uh, very equal opportunity. As a matter of fact, I started out with Matt Sinclair, Tunnelly Jones, uh, Andrea Markovici, Patti Lapone. Um, Oh, I can name so many uh, actors that were in the same oh, class. How, how Wonderful training. The, how did you get in that door, mm. Joe? Well, okay, this is not very nice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's not Euripides. Yeah, it's not um, how did I get in? I would buy the paper for casting, and if it called for a redhead, I would buy a red wig and go. <laughs> and as long as I had the wig, and if the stage manager would tell other people, no, I said, this is my hair, I bought it, I'm staying. <laughs> and that's how I got into a lot of jobs. I had a chance when they did <clears throat> The Corn is Green. I wanted, to, I wanted to meet Joshua Logan and Betty Davis. There was nothing going to keep me out of there. And Mrs. Waddy was supposed to be an, uh, a Welsh woman with red hair. Well, she turned out to be very black, very fat, and with some real kinks, because I got that role. <laughs> I went out that red wig, and I did the audition. He said, she can Good have it. <laughs> any, other, any other wigs around here? Joel, what about you? When did you come in to play on the... Uh, and how, how much did you put into it? Play on is a dream come true in this industry. I've been a professional actor for 27 years, and we pay those kinds of dues, thinking that one day a director will call and say, we have a role with your name on it, and rehearsal start on this date. Not that you have to come and audition for it. Sheldon Epps, who is the conceiver and director of Play On, called me one day and said, I have this idea to marry Duke Ellington's music to Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, and I think you can play the parallel character of Festy. I was in Buffalo at the time playing Willie Loman, thinking, why do I want to do another musical now that I'm doing Arthur Miller? <laughs> <laughs> and now that I consider it in retrospect, I see that playing Willie Loman and sinking to those <coughs> emotional depths was preparing me to play Jester, who is the parallel character to Festy in Play On, because he rises to those effervescent heights. And I did not have to audition. I simply had to read the synopsis, agree to do the role, having been promised that it was going to come together because of a huge contribution from my part. Because the adaptation had not been written by Cheryl West at the time, and the conceit of the idea had not been finished. And Sheldon admitted that he depended on whoever the cast might be to finish this project. I said yes. They sent me the ticket. I went out to the Old Globe.
in San Diego, which was another dream of mine to, to work at the Old Globe. But I'm going to ask the same question of you now. How did you know what to do, and where did you get the background to because know what it, to bring to it? It goes back to our original uh, debate concerning music. You said, I'm sure, tongue-in-cheek, that this industry is easy for us. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it is. Once you decide what makes your heart sing, mm -hmm. you do it. And the explanation of what was going to happen with Play On made my heart sing. An opportunity to show, after having done The Wiz, after having done The Viper in Ain't Misbehaving, after having introduced everyone to the dark side of Andre de Shields, it made my heart sing to think that I could now reveal the humorous part, the clown in Andre de Shields. And that's exactly what I get a chance to do and play on. I act a fool and I get paid to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you were, so you were really also, uh, you were the actor creator here too. Absolutely. Which, is, so you were in Which we are all the time. Yes. We are always the actor creator. But there are very few opportunities that we get when the director puts that label on you. You're going to co-create with me. Yeah, and you're also dealing with the classic with Ellington's music, as well as Well, we're dealing, we're dealing with what, who is arguably the greatest composer, American composer in the 20th century, Duke Ellington, and certainly the greatest writer in the history of the English language, Shakespeare. And it is amazing how the two have married. There are moments in the show when you must think that Duke Ellington was an Elizabethan, composer because the song fits the story or you think that Shakespeare lives in Manhattan Plaza because, because the, the the scene fits the music that that perfectly but don't you feel that every actor really you really are creating the role even with the director when you're working with the director it's your interpretation of what is coming across I, I think this is the perfect example here. I think Joel, of creating a role, is, is a perfect example of what an actor brings to a part because almost everything that he has done, anybody that follows it, you think of him as in that role and you have to follow Joel Gray right from the very beginning. And, how can and you're doing it today <laughs> in, <laughs> in <laughs> Chicago. Yeah. Joel, how do you feel about this? Well, uh, I think that, that I agree completely with my fellow actors in that we, we do collaborate. It's, it's just whether or not the, the director agrees with that concept and his will is generous enough to say that this is something that we have to do together for it to really be right. Uh, you don't have to do a play when you know you're going to be uh, in, the, in the hands of a tyrant. Uh, so actors are uh, have that choice too to not do it. It's a very it's a great luxury. Yes, uh, but I've been very fortunate in that uh, in both cabaret and Chicago, they were both parts that I had no idea how to do when they when I was uh, approached. I, I had no idea what Hal Prince and John Kander and Fred Ebb had in mind and why they would think of me to play the MC in Cabaret. I just didn't know what it was. I didn't know. All it, it seemed to me to be a dead end uh, with five wonderful songs and no acting role. Mm 
it looked like uh, just a song and dance section in Act Two, which is the way they presented it to me in the first place. And before we started uh, rehearsal, they had come to this notion of spreading these numbers out all during uh, the piece and have them comment on the action before and sometimes uh, tell us what's going to happen in the future. My job was to find a person. There were no lines. And uh, my soul, and I began at, at the age of nine at the Cleveland Playhouse, and I always think of myself first uh, as an actor and what, who is this character? And how does an audience relate to it? And what has he got to say? And how can I do this? And uh, I had no idea. There was nothing of that indicated in these five songs. There was this uh, a decadent master of ceremonies who sang and danced. And um, had you read the book? Yeah, did you go to Isherwood? There was no character in, in yeah. Isherwood. Of course, I read everything. And uh, I found my inspiration. Uh, Oddly enough, in being around Lada Lenya, who was in it and who was there at the time, Boris Aronson's recollections of European experiences, uh, I looked at Beckmann and Gross and all of the great German expressionists, and then I was given this um, inspiration that, that we depend on, we actors, that Maybe that day, it'll come to us through our experience, through our knowledge, uh, that we'll find the way into the role. And uh, until you do it, at least for me, until I do it, it's terror. And uh, one day, uh, we, we, were, we had been rehearsing for about three weeks, and everybody was happy, and it was fine, but I wasn't. I wasn't. I didn't know who he was. And um, so I decided that day to do it like someone I had seen in a nightclub once who I had such distaste for. <laughs> I thought, that is the cheapest, <laughs> cruddiest performer I have ever seen. Name. And it really <laughs> stuck with me. He <laughs> was a, a, a song and dance comedian, oddly enough. And um, I thought to myself, I can't bear what he does. <laughs> so I decided that day to do that to do everything that he did that I so <laughs> hated and was repulsed by. And uh, so I just put that overlay on all these, these uh, other elements that were in the musical elements. And I finished doing the number, I remember very clearly. And uh, I ran off stage afterwards into the corner, and I started to cry. I was humiliated. And I had done it in front of everybody. And uh, I, I was just, it was so painful to, to acknowledge that I knew about this. And also, maybe to, in some way, I was, I was killing somebody. And there was something dark about what I was, I was using and uh, putting him in, in, a, in a case of disrepute, which of course, Nobody ever knows who this was. 
And uh, I was sitting in the corner, and I was just really just devastated and humiliated. And Hal Prince came over and said, that's it. And I had to live with it. <laughs> and then come to love it. Yeah, not only did you have to what live with it, but everybody now who does cabaret is doing your interpretation Absolutely. of that role. So you really created more than just, you know. But, you know, on these seminars, we heard over and over again in talking about background that it's, it's not only uh, being able to work with people, but it's also to know what to draw on. And in some cases, it's been said, go on with your education because then it will save you time and you won't have to go look up who Brecht was or any of the others. You already know, and then you go on with the character. In others, it was draw on every experience, every person that you've ever known, but listen and see. And this is an absolute perfect example of and the, and doing that. And the exact same thing happened in, in Chicago. I said, I, I can't play this part. In 1975, he was played by a wonderful actor by the name of Barney Martin, a 200-pound sort of dumb mechanic. And I said, I, I, I don't think I can do that. And uh, when I came to New York, it was, I think the only reason I said yes is it was for four performances at Encores. <coughs> And there was a kind of, it was, it was less uh, literal. It was, it was more abstract. And uh, it was a wonderful song, Mr. Cellophane. So I came in to, to play those four performances and was lucky enough to have a director by the name of Walter Bobby who said, we have to find a new way into this character for you. And so we began from scratch. And rather than him being a secondary supporting character uh, that you really just sort of thought, why would Roxy ever want to be with him? Of course she's cheating on him. Uh, we decided that what he did, he did for love. And uh, he was the character with love and a, a sense of dignity in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And there, it never had lived that way before. And Walter decided that it was in fact now a play about four people. Not this was not a just a, another good, uh, you know, extra song in Act Two. So we found a, a, a whole cloth, and uh, it was a very satisfying experience. But once again, totally different. Uh, the MC was in your face, and uh, from now on, the, that's and the way Amos, it's going to be. And Amos Hart, you can look right through him. Yeah. He's but not there. He's, he's still Mr. A very, Cellophane. He's still a very small part, which you make into a big part. But in, in terms of number of lions, it's remarkably small for the, the that tremendous But are we impact. talking about quality? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are. We are. We are. And small parts and small actors. <laughs> That's right. That's what we have. I have to say about Joe, he is such a rascal because he can play and, and has, evidently enjoys playing a kind of clown who then knows perfectly well he's capable of breaking your heart. <laughs> and you are going to have your heart broken by this man who at the same time is so capable of making you laugh. And this goes back, I suppose, 2,000 years. This is what uh, Moliere, my favorite comparison with Joel, I've always wanted him to play Moliere, but, <laughs> but that's what he could do, and that's what you do, and they're always able to do that. And that is in you. It is in you that's coming out. But I role. never, ever, ever think I can do mm -hmm. the, the things that I end up doing and finding great satisfaction. I'm usually, I, say, I, I don't know how to do this. Yes. And when I say that, my friends say, 
He's going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the light bulb, the light goes on at some point. Right. How do, I have to be a rascal now, because I have to graciously retreat from this marvelous company. I need to get back to uh, Rockefeller Plaza, where we are doing a great tribute to Duke Ellington. Today marks the 98th anniversary of his birth. Oh, wonderful. And we are, as it were, literally dancing in the streets. <laughs> so, so thank you for the time. We're all that. going with you. <laughs> 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 we'll Isabel, first. I want to do this. First, because I know how to dance. Yes, Nobody I know you do. <laughs> so I want to be able to do this correctly. Do I just... <laughs> Unmic myself and get out of here. So long as you sashay off. Okay. Yes. Yes. Thank yes. you so much. Thank you for coming. I'm proud of you. Can I help you? Well, Andre, well, Andre's doing that. I'll throw a, a, a question in another direction, but it relates to. We're talking about research, too, and how you do your homework uh, to a degree. Of, of, and the homework is of different things. Paul, what was your approach to, to uh, Chekhov? Well, whenever I, I mean, I took this as a great opportunity to read uh, as much Russian literature as I could. And I read a lot of Tolstoy and things like that. Um, I did some reading about the period, uh, but sometimes I get a little wary about doing too much research. And I wanted to see how much I can just get from the text of it itself, because it can sometimes get in my way, and I'll be sitting around thinking too much about uh, historic, specific historical things. So I, I, I tried to read a lot of literature that was evocative of Chekhov in the period and things like that. So that was helpful for me. Mm -hmm. And also back on, because uh, Danny, you also did, have uh, done two shows this year, and we talk about music, and you did uh, a marvelous uh, job in Sex and Morning. You, know, you really did. And that's a totally different kind of music. <laughs> sure is. But you had to find that, and you mm. did find it, I think, very, very well. That's an interesting uh, uh, case in point of what Joel was talking about. I, I, I did a reading of that, and it, um, and it was great fun to do the reading, and it just kind of barreled out of me. And I thought, oh, that's great fun. Then I started trying to put it together in a rehearsal period, and I didn't know where I was or where to start or what to do, because in a reading, you're just kind of skimming on the surface, doing this musical thing we've been talking about, trying to make the sound out there, the pace, everything, just so it works for a one-time thing. Then when you start investigating it and trying to create a character, it's like, wait a minute, uh, how, do, uh, how does this person talk? How does this person, you know, how does all this sound come out of this person on a grounded, in a grounded way? And it took me um, a while to put it all together and find a way to use the kind of reading energy that I had had and finally come back with the same kind of energy that this character needed, having gone through a lot of investigation to find out where it all tied up, you know, and what she really wanted, you know, um, trying to find the, the really positive things to play, to go for, uh, because so much of what she said, if you sort of deconstructed it, was negative. So you have to find something really positive that the person wants um, and to go after in order to ride you through all of that. Um, now, uh, we always ask the same question about how one begins in the theater. Uh, if you began in the cradle, we want you to say so. But how <laughs> old were you when you first decided, I want to be an actress? Six. Hmm? Six. <laughs> oh, that's a good early age. So. In the South, yes. My mother was an amateur actress in Atlanta, but I do distinctly remember sitting at my grandmother's kitchen table when I was six, 
I think, six or seven, and saying I wanted to be an actress when I grew up, and my grandmother was absolutely horrified. You know, oh, oh God. But I've, I've never wanted to be anything else. Mm -hmm. So in school, you were able to take the leading parts? Or? Well, we didn't have a, when my high school, we didn't do um, very much, but my mother was the director of uh, plays at Georgia Tech, a group called Drama Tech. So from the time that I was about 13, I played every maid you can conceive of um, in the plays at Georgia Tech. And, um, and then, you know, we had a senior class play, but then I went to college and I, um, in the middle of my um, freshman year, I finally decided to go ahead and major in theater. I was thinking about being an archeologist, but I thought, well, I'm gonna be spending all my time at the theater anyway. I might as well make it pay off towards my degree. So I majored in theater. What college were you at? Rollins College. Mm -hmm. And then I was very fortunate and I applied for and got a Fulbright grant to study in London. The year. Uh -huh. So I had a year of what amounts to graduate work at Lambda in London, Directly England. Directly from Rollins? Yes. Mm -hmm. So that was marvelous. Oh, it was wonderful. It was just, What you know, was the difference that you found? That's interesting because, you know, of, of, of the English training to what you, uh, what did you learn at Lambda that you might not have heard? I mean, a lot of us have different Well, some of what we're talking about today, when I was at Rollins, our, all of our acting classes were very small and it was completely a Stanislavski approach and acting exercises, uh, sense memory, actions, objectives, you know, beats, all this kind of, uh, vocabulary um, and I had read Stanislavski's building a character and thought why does anybody ever talk about this and I thought I want to go and and uh, get some technical foundation so that's primarily what I got when I was in England uh, the, the class I was in was considered um, a sort of we didn't go through the basics the regular English students were learning everything I'd learned in college but our class um, worked on voice and movement um, diction text um, just all of the ways to try and you know just not working with trying to figure out how you feel or the way you're going to show the way you feel we're all working only on the structure side of it and giving giving us a really strong uh, a capability for using our bodies, our instruments, as well as, as we could, in, given any feeling we wanted to express. So it was primarily a, a technical um, instruction that I got there. Then did you come back to Rollins or did you come to New York? No, I had graduated from Rollins. So I came back and I actually went and to the <coughs> Front Street Theater in Memphis, Tennessee was my first uh, yeah. job when I got back from from London. Mm -hmm. And I was there for, a, that's where I got my equity card and I was there for a season of monthly stock for seven shows. And then when did you come to New York? Well, I avoided New York. I was very <laughs> frightened of New York, and I stayed in the region. I actually went to Canada and worked up there for eight years mm -hmm. after Memphis uh, because I loved English theater so much, and I knew that that was, uh, at that time particularly, the English theater was more available up there than in this country. So I went up there and became an immigrant and worked up there all across Canada for eight years. I finally came home, but I went back to Atlanta for three and a half years, and it, it was a long time before I came to New York. I was really afraid the city was just going to eat me up. Mm -hmm. Were you working in a resident company in, in Canada? Or, Many res yes. I would go and, and work um, fall, winter, spring in, for a whole season. Most of them had seasons that were kind of September to May, mm -hmm. and I would do um, a season with a company. I did. Um, 
a season in Winnipeg, two in Calgary, two in Montreal. I toured one year across Canada with a bus That's and truck, which is everybody. Wonderful everybody experience. should have that experience. So. <laughs> you know, I say it after it's over, but then it's like being in the army or something. Afterward, it's a good thing to have done. Oh, no, and you, every young person, I, mean, is, I wouldn't trade anything in the world for that experience, and I'm glad I did it when I was young. But it was wonderful. It was wonderful. You just have to go into a space immediately. You arrive in the afternoon, even have to set up the set. You go in and you have to, you know, assess the space and how you're going to fill it and use whatever your performance that is that you've arrived at with your um, colleagues and you have to make it work in that space and the space is very widely and it's a wonderful um, education in itself, just learning how to perform in a space. Brendan, one of the things that, that occurs to me now that I think might be <clears throat> worth talking about is that we're all in enterprises right now where the public wants to see what, what it is we're doing. But the things that we do in those enterprises, we have done hundreds before yeah. that make us who we are today in this particular piece that Willem is in and Dana's in and, and, uh, and Nell and myself. And a lot of them were failures. A lot of them were experiments. A lot of them were exactly what she was talking about. Dana and I worked on a, uh, a wonderful John Shanley play a couple of years ago at Vassar. I watched her creative process. It was remarkable. It was exactly, was sort of like sitting, you really knew that then? <laughs> and uh, realizing that, that that worked, we learned so much there, but what we learned there is in her performance in Ballyhoo. Yeah. Yeah. It was the sum of an awful lot of experiences. Yeah. But how, Willem, how early did you begin? Can you do better than I, six? I, well, I feel, <laughs> uh, I feel a little out of place because when I look back on things, I feel like for the longest time I didn't decide that I wanted to be an actor and I didn't really train to be an actor. And when I look back on it, the truth is I've had very, very little formal training. But on the other hand, ever since I was quite young, I was performing first as an amateur, and then I uh, became involved with companies quite young. First, a company in the Midwest that spent most of their time in Europe, and then with the Wooster Group, this uh, company downtown that I've been with mm -hmm. for 20 years. So that's a lot of training. That's a lot of training by doing. But uh, whenever. Anybody talks about training, I get a little nervous. I'm going to be exposed. <laughs> Someone let me in the door. No, the doing, the doing is the training. Yeah. And the family. It is. Yeah. Failing is and terribly important. The wonderful important. thing with working with the company and working with a lot of the same people for 20 years, I mean, I think the Worcester Group is one of the oldest true companies uh, in the country that actually makes original work. Uh, you know, we're, we're allowed to fail quite a bit. <laughs> but now, did you go to school? Did you bother with school? I went school? to school briefly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More exposure. More exposure. Yeah. You know, I, and, and basically, uh, yeah. <laughs> I just followed my nose. I mean, the school of hard knocks is just as good, okay? <laughs> the thing is, I, I know, I will not say my age, 
but I'm from the South, and all I know <laughs> is that I can't compete with girlfriend. I am 23. <laughs> I remember being punished and coming downstairs and seeing all about Eve. And I came down with Margot. It's from the audience point of view. And it was not a doubt in my mind. And I was a child, same age. <laughs> I was a child that knew that was what I wanted. I didn't understand it. And I cannot, ex I cannot explain to you what, uh, how some people put emphasis on where you've been and all that. Through Joe Papp, I did get a scholarship to learn at the Young Vic in London. But I do not put that in my resume. A lot of things I won't put down because most of my failures are my proudest moments. Go on with that a little more, because we yeah, heard you say failure, failure, and you did too, Joe. Failure is important. It is so important because you get a chance to see your limitations, and you get a chance to improve. And if you have an ego, as all actors do, you will find a way to just get at it and get at it and get at it and get at it. It's like going on the day after bad reviews. What do you do? Go out there and say, oh, what the hell, they don't like me. I might as well not do it. No, no, no. No, no, no. And if we're not play together and we just got bad reviews, if you don't come on giving fully, I'm going to come off the side of the stage and say, if you do that again tomorrow, I'm going to turn to you and ask you what's wrong. Because the whole thing is to live on the stage. This is what I want to do. I did not want to work television anymore. I wanted to come back to this. And believe me, I now know that you should never follow in Dorothy Loudon's footsteps. <laughs> and that's why I purposely did not try to copy her. But I do not regret for a moment, for one moment, anything I've done from the death of the salesman for trying to get in that, hey, I don't care. I never saw myself as black or you as white. It was like, I can do it, I can do it, and I still don't see myself that way. When I look in the mirror, I see, I go to work, I don't care what hurts. When they say on, I'm on. And I give it my best. I had one reviewer. role model, really. No, but I had one reviewer that says that uh, she goes on stage to prove that she can Sing, and I had to say, what did the, what, can you read that again? <laughs> Why am I going on stage to I'll sing? I said, could you, well, what would I do but go then give it up my all? <laughs> Where did this idiot come from? You think like, <laughs> and he's a critic. And you think, when I go out there, it is to give you all. I personally, if I'm going to die, I want to be on stage. <laughs> so everyone will time. see it. <laughs> right here. If it's on TV, they can edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> on stage. <laughs> I wanted to ask, how did you get into the Wooster Group? Um, after working with this small company, uh, I came to New York, really intending to, uh, you know, have a kind of traditional commercial theater career. And I looked around, and I was seeing all kinds of stuff on Broadway, off-Broadway, in lofts. And I just saw this particular performance at the Wooster Group, and my jaw dropped. And uh, I wanted to become involved. So I 
went to them and I said, look, uh, I'm a carpenter, I'm a pretty good carpenter. Uh, I, I'll, I just insinuated myself into the company, really. I you made myself... You uh, No, I said I was a performer, too. But um, <laughs> it was like an informal apprenticeship, uh, really. And uh, that's the way almost that everyone that's been in that company has become involved. They've kind of hung around, and then you couldn't get rid of them because you couldn't run the place without them. Right. And, <laughs> and also because we all, when, as we make work, we're all in the same room with the technicians and, and our spheres of responsibility overlap. Um, pretty soon, you know, the guy that's sweeping the floor starts to do the props. It's really an old-fashioned uh, way to work. And then start, he starts to have small roles, and then before you know it, where is he? Uh, he he's got to do that role, and before you know it, he's doing the lead role. If, so it's, it's kind of, when I talk about it, it sounds really kind of romantic and sentimental, but that's really the well, way it that's works. The way, that's the way the Richard theater Richard Schechner was, was, is, you know, was a very... He initially started in type, yeah. Right, and then Elizabeth LeCompte, whose work I was most attracted to, um, you know, that's uh, that's where the existing work really. You mean if I you wanted to join the Worcester group, drop by, Joel. I, I, I'd have to sweep up first. <laughs> oh, we we could work something up. Love to go back to those days. Yes, I mean I wouldn't mind. <laughs> Floors and, and windows. You, love, you have a very distinctive voice, but there was no voice training. You can recognize your voice long without mm -hmm. seeing you because mm -hmm. the particular timbre mm -hmm. of your voice. Mm -hmm. But that just was with you from the beginning while you were sweeping floors. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, what made you come to New York from, uh, well, Wisconsin and Middle East? Wisconsin, um, you know, basically, New York was where the theater was to me. And well, what and, got and you I interested if you, in theater? Where in did theater, you come from in Wisconsin? Well, was there a regional theater near you? Mm, no, I mean, there was a small community theater, and then when I went to school for a bit, and then there was this small company called Theater X in, in, uh, in Madison, Milwaukee, right? Milwaukee, actually. Uh, I don't know. I wanted to be an actor, and my idea at that time, particularly, uh, what were, and being an actor was about being in the theater. It wasn't about movies. Partly because just I didn't know anybody in movies. You know, that was something way out there. I mean, I like movies as much as anyone, but I clearly um, wanted the uh, just physically uh, wanted to be in the theater. So it's you immediate. spoke at the Cleveland Playhouse, and now how where was that in your career? Where was that in your career? The Cleveland Playhouse. Well, I was nine, and I was in a play <laughs> called on, bar on Borrowed Time. Oh. Yeah. I think I started about five, <laughs> six, six, six. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> playing uh, an adorable. Six is the number. Playing yeah. an adorable yeah. child. Wasn't your father a brat? Yeah. Hmm? Wasn't your father? My father was a comedian, but uh, and a musician, but he had no interest in the theater. It was like. It was my passion. It was kind of the way in which I identified myself and was diversified myself. Was, this, were you, was your father? He was a musician, essentially. Was a musician. A, yeah, mm -hmm. clarinetist and a saxophonist. And was this in Cleveland? Or in was Cleveland, this in Ohio, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to see a, uh, a children's production. Uh, it was a group called the Curtain Pullers. And uh, I loved it. And I said, I want to do that. And so I started to go to class on... Saturday mornings, right. and they would do these little things. I played uh, uh, Little Black Sambo, uh -huh. 
You did. I did. I, I saw no color lines. I know the feeling. And, um, and I was outrageous. They put a Topsy wig on me. I'll be your standby any day. It was terrible. <laughs> and then I was, I was found uh, in that class by the uh, professional theater for this production of On Borrow Time, and probably the greatest part a kid actor ever had. When did you come to New York? I came to New York when I was uh, 19. Mm -hmm. I came for an audition when I was about 12 for Life with Father. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Yeah. And now went right back to Cleveland. <laughs> Save it. We have to break for just a minute now. And so that everybody can stretch and can turn around and think about all the questions. Too? I'm going to stretch. I'm going to do cartwheels. <laughs> and we'll all come back again. Please don't go away. Just think of all the questions you want to ask this panel. Have them ready. And somebody from the wing will take them for you. And we'll be right back. This is CUNY TV, Channel 75. We're back at the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. And this seminar is on the performance. And Brendan Gill and George White, our moderators, will continue the probing of what it is to work in theatre from this wonderful group that we have here today. They've been so marvelous and telling what it was like, where they started, and where they are now. So, George, will you continue? You know, I, I'd like to uh, continue with Joe a little bit more about, uh, we, uh, I think, as we last left you, you were 12 years old. And, and, <laughs> uh, well, I was very, very lucky in that the Cleveland Playhouse was one of the great, great regional theaters in that period of time. And for me to be uh, nine years old, with a group of professionals who looked at me as an equal if I knew my lines, if I was on time, if I had my makeup on correctly, if I was a responsible citizen in the theater, it was like heaven for me. And it probably changed my life forever and probably formed the way I think and the way I feel about uh, the theater as uh, a holy Place. And I don't mean that in a, in a religious way, but I do mean it in a spiritual way. And uh, I was very, very lucky because I saw beautiful work, I saw how it was done, and there was no condescension to my age. Uh, as I said, I was, I was an equal was among actors. Was there anyone that inspired you or any particular people, or, or were there people? Yes, there was a, a man, a director, by the name of K. Elmo Lowe, mm -hmm. who somehow believed in me and had this notion that uh, I was to be a, uh, an actor in this life. And, and his wife was a woman by the name of Dorothy Paxton. They were Southerners and a very romantic, and I have a photograph in my dressing room today, of, of all the, the, the starters of the Cleveland Playhouse, it is so beautiful. It looks like Gatsby. I mean, they're so full of life and hope and elegance and self-respect. That's what I found 
in that place is that there was a belief that that work and the theater and what happens on the stage can change people's lives the lives of the actors the lives of the audiences the lives of us together and i've always i've always felt that and when i go to the theater i am excited just before that curtain goes up when i sit out every time even though i'm told it's not going to be good i still am hopeful and respectful of that experience and uh, they, i love it and celebrated actors come through and were they invited to do any of the productions at the cleveland playhouse or they came through cleveland just in road companies no the cleveland playhouse was uh, its own company right. like the worcester right group well did at you its learn, time and then later on they had they did brought you, in people. Did you get your musical training and your dancing? I had no there? musical training. You had no? No, I, 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 I had some tap lessons when I was about 11 and I hated it. And uh, <laughs> I actually wanted to be a ballet dancer, but I, did, I couldn't take the guff. <laughs> I couldn't take the kids at school making fun of me because that was really when my passion. Come, when did you come to New York? Uh, when I was 18. And to do what? Be on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> that's a line from George M. I remember. Doing <laughs> no, that's a line from Life. <laughs> right. But, uh, but you know, one of the great things that you have, and I wonder whether you can learn it or whether it, I think I know the answer to it, but I'd like to hear it from you. Is this incredible sense of timing that you have? And do you is that just built in, or you, can you learn that? I don't know. I thought not. I think it probably I don't be. know the answer to that. I think I, that there's a lot of intuition in what we do, and that we, it comes back to what we started talking about at the beginning: music. Timing is music, mm -hmm. and it's something you either and clicking with the person you work. You either with. sense and you know what the moment wants, and you're also sensitive to that other actor, so that together you make a wonderful duet. Yeah, but I think it's also what Dana said. That she traveled all over Canada working in front of all different kinds of audiences and with less and less preparation needed each time but just getting on and making herself honest to the audience and not just music but that comes with experience and how to deal with it and you by doing all the different roles that you did as a child at the Cleveland Playhouse was learning the same thing. I think it's more than intuition. I think there's an experience that has to come with how to handle different audiences with your, <clears throat> with your art, in a sense, with what you know, with your timing, with your music, but mainly what to do with this audience today, how, how to treat it. And that's important. I, I wonder if that's being made available to young people in the theater today. I wonder too because to go out. They, there's not there are not as many opportunities for young people to go out and slog away in the boondocks as there used to be and learn their craft because uh, any if you if you start out with the premise that to be an actor you have to and I, I believe it is true you have to have some innate gift whatever it is whether you go through formal training or not mm -hmm. you have the intelligence and the sensitivity to grasp to teach yourself as you go along and learn from other people. Um, so given that you have this ability, then you do have to have the experiences of working with other people. And, and just to work yourself, to have those failures or successes that show you your own parameters, 
how to accomplish what it is that you as the individual artist in this teamwork situation, what you need to accomplish each time and how you serve your team and how you serve the writer and yourself uh, thereby. But it is something that can only be done through, um, through the training of experience, just mm -hmm. as any draftsman may have a gift, but he teaches himself by doing it over and over and over how to accomplish most efficiently and most beautifully what it is he wants to accomplish, to draw. And he can't just do it first time out. You have to be able to do it over and over and over again to teach yourself how to do it. And without the chance to do that, I don't mm -hmm. know how young people, acting schools are great, but that's not the same as having to go out and deliver to an audience and communicate with them. And there are not as many um, avenues for young people to do that, I don't think, today. And that sounds crazy because we had this huge boom of theaters for so long, and there are probably more theaters now than there were when I was starting out. And yet, maybe because there seem to be more young people trying to start out as well, there just seem to be less opportunities. Also, I think that young people don't really want to do that work. Um, I frequently talk to young actors who want to be celebrities and um, <laughs> they want to be movie stars or television stars they don't want to do the work per se and I think there's a confusion in their minds about what we do or what it is that one does as an actor and they're not willing to uh, you know, go and live in Podunk for a year or two years, if that would be the, the thing that Nobody would help them to learn how to do what they need to do. Nobody right. ever told them that that was how it works. Yeah. I guess you see, it's right. another, another kind of generation with the, the, these yeah. enormous stars and television and that quick fix notion. It's like they're fed that from age two, three, four, five, mm -hmm. whereas yeah. we were Exposed well, to a whole other kind of life. We were supposed to eating craft macaroni and cheese, <laughs> uh, making it stretch. We were learning how to make souffles because you could only buy that box of eggs and that flour. We learned how to walk. We learned how to work for free. We learned how to con our ways backstage so we could see every play. And we learned how. No, the, when I was starting out, we didn't stab each other in the back. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm going to jump in a minute because there's something else that I, I learned too at the break that you, that something you did not learn, but you have to do, and that yeah. is that you went on opening night and have continued to perform with a strangulated hernia, which right. was, you know, which, and then uh, I've just got it taken care of. So you were two days out with your understudy and that's it. Now that's not easy. That's a, that you go on in pain. Well, I was in pain the whole time, but um, the pain was so bad that um, no one could come near me. I mean, I was, I couldn't wear my costumes, and they, I had to use um, the woman that covered me costumes, because under that dress where I look, I have bindings on now since the surgery happened. I would have um, three pair of stockings, four underwear, and you would have the trusk, plus the man's hernia belt, anything to keep the pressure off. And you go out there and you smile and all of a sudden you don't feel it. You kick, you do the thing, and if they didn't like it, I personally, going back to what you said earlier about being on stage and being intuitive, if you trust the person you're on stage with, 
everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. I knew that when I was working with Colleen, no matter how much pain, I would just look at her cross-eyed. And she, <laughs> I, read, I read it like this. Huh. And then our gym would come on as rooster, and I just knew I have to do this kick, or they're going to say I'm not doing my best. You just do it. And that's not, and I'm not saying the show must go on, because I don't think that is the case. It was more of a thing that I didn't know how serious it was until finally I was just doubled over so much, and then I went to the doctor um, on a Friday, and he said, you have to have this out now. I said, uh-uh, I have a matinee tomorrow. <laughs> and I have a matinee Sunday. I can't do that. And he said, no, you don't understand. You can get peritonitis, you can do this, or you could end up with a colostomy. And I said, yeah, but I'll be on stage. And I thought he was joking, so I said, I'll come in Monday. I went in Monday, and I had to sign these papers where he was really for real about this bag. Then I thought, First thing I thought, well, where am I going to put this bag? Because I am going to kick. <laughs> I just... <laughs> where you at? That's great. But I got back on stage, and uh, today's the day to get the stitches out. So, um, You're in I'm time. alive. <laughs> Isn't it just selfish? The other part, the understudy is so good, she'll never go on again. <laughs> <laughs> they well, stood up for her, she'll never go on again. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, uh, tell us about, a little bit about you. I know that your mother is a trained actress. My mother was a trained actress, and yeah. Tell me a little bit about your getting into the business. Well, I, I mean, I kind of came from a sort of theatrical family, I mean, literally and sort of metaphorically very theatrical people. <laughs> you know, I know. Very Italian kind of. So, uh, <laughs> I think that it was always something that we kind of did, and, and uh, but I, I think I denied it for a long time that it was something I wanted to do. Because I kind of thought this isn't something a serious human being <laughs> really does. So, I guess I'm not a very serious human <laughs> being. Where did, you, uh, where did you study and go to school? I, uh, well, I started really doing it undergraduate at Yale University. And then I moved out to Seattle. Now, I was going to say, I mean, speaking as a young actor, a fairly young actor, I mean, I don't know if it's true to characterize young actors so generally, because, I mean, I knew plenty of people out in Seattle where I lived for about four years, and we really worked in little work black, box closet, black box closet theaters mm -hmm. making $13 a month was what we made. And, I mean, uh, there were lots of people out there, and there are lots of young actors who are doing that kind of thing. And, uh, uh, also, I think it has to be said fairly mm -hmm. that uh, young actors learn on television. I'm always baffled by that because they I mean they learn they learn how to become actors on television on because they television. need young people playing young parts on television. Where do they get their training in their teens? I guess. I guess so. I don't know. I mean, but there, I, I but there is good work yet. being done by actors there on television. Is. Just I mean, there's definitely is. There is a lot of it in places like Seattle and yeah. in Chicago and places yeah, the like that. Have done a lot of yeah, so I mean, there is a lot of those that are the stars, on. the Seattle and, and, yeah. and Chicago that for those kinds of and places, Minneapolis yeah. and, and Providence. Those. But in right. between, you you need just to go out and work and, and be able to sweep the floors and make. And also, I think you need to have the opportunity to work with people who've been in the theater for a long time, right? So that you can observe them. Um, 
you know, if you can s throw five talented people together and, and maybe they'll start coming up, young people with a lot of good stuff on their own, but you can learn an awful lot oh, from working with seasoned professionals. And there is a sense of theater heritage and, and, and what you do and what you don't do that's, I guess, sort of unspoken. And not that it's gospel, but it's helpful. And, um, you know, and there, there, are, there are things that are useful in the theater, necessary in the theater, that are, are not good in films and television. There's, you know, uh, y you want to be totally spontaneous in films and television. It's like the moment, but you can't just be totally spontaneous on the stage because you may wreck somebody else's scene, you know, and, and you have to learn to, <laughs> to do a, a kind of glorified, abnormal behavior that looks normal <laughs> in order to feed what necess what's necessary, because you could be splitting focus and you could be, you know, doing all kinds of things to wreck a scene if you're being totally spontaneous. So there's some things that work in one medium that don't in another that people need to learn about. But I think knowing your craft will help you absolutely. go over to another medium. Right. Oh, think. absolutely. Well, well Joel, you, you mentioned, um, you know, working at the Cleveland for, for so uh, long at the Cleveland Playhouse. Uh, again, so that you really didn't have a lot of drama school in, except that learning by picking up... Later on, I studied at the Neighborhood Playhouse. Oh, you did? And then with, with Meisner? With, with Sanford Meisner. Right. And then with Wynne Hanman. Uh-huh. But starting out, you'd built that long background of I watching that, other people do it. I think I got a lot from, I, I get a lot from all the, the people that I'm lucky enough to, uh, to work with, a lot. But I think that the, the who I am, the core of, of who and what it is I do as an actor, I think happened in those years from 9 to 12. Well, I'll bet it. And because it was so uh, positive and so... Uh, intelligent and loving and respectful and I was thinking there, there really were manners that were uh, part of the theater life and there were manners were part of American life <laughs> ones too uh, and I, I I sadly miss that sort of basic courtesy professional yes. courtesy real courtesy yeah. mm -hmm. human courtesy human courtesy yeah which, which is um, that's amazing uh, Willem, did you have a mentor? Did you have anybody that you looked to? Um, <clears throat> not specifically. Basically, these people that I work with in the Worcester Group, I'd say. So you bounced off each other and therefore became each other's mentors, is that? Right. I mean, they were really making work, uh, you know, very articulate, very strong work when I was pretty much unformed. So I still look to them. Great. We have so many people that want to ask questions that I'm going to have to interrupt you now and see if you can answer some of them. Why don't you come up, David? Uh, Nell Carter had said before about giving the show her all, and as we heard from your story, you certainly are still doing that every night. And this question relates to that issue of maintaining the show and consistency and maintaining a fresh show, eight shows a week, especially in a long run. And that, I, I know that must be difficult to do, and dare say the issue of keeping a show alive and not being bored um, must be very difficult. And the second part would be, um, do you find it helpful, desirable, or even terrifying for a director to come back midway through 
and work with you. So, and you all want to start now? Then we'll pick it up. Oh, I can answer that. I absolutely love it when Martin comes back. I um, no. You, I know you know his reputation, but you know we get along <laughs> fine. He and I get along fine because we can both blow at the same time, so we don't blow. Um, I think it's very important that the director comes back because otherwise you start getting notes from people that were not there when you created it and they're telling you what you thought at the beginning and they don't know what was in your head. Secondly, I believe rehearsal is very important because you start doing things and as you, what, what, I, don't know, I don't know how you phrased it, but you improvise something and it's funny and then your fellow actor let, lets it go all of a sudden you it's a part of the show and you might say back up so i think rehearsal is very important that's my opinion does anyone else want to answer that how about keeping your show fresh now joel you did god knows how how long in cabaret and you're uh, in well, just a year just a year in cabaret one year in the original cabaret that's a long time. and then i did it for a year in the uh the 20th revival uh, I, I actually look forward to being surprised on stage by myself and by the other actors within the form that the director and the actors have created. And uh, you obviously, that, that has to be respected at all times. But I, I love when things are slightly different, slightly different, but lively and still true to me. Sometimes I, my, my choices aren't as good, but I, I still, for the most part, think that they belong in the play. <laughs> uh, but I, I do love, I, I, I love to, uh, to live in the moment. And some of my uh, uh, co-actors over a long period of time really don't like that. They want to stay. Do you want to step up with your questions? Strong and yeah. steely to the minute, to, and they're afraid to let go of anything. You and have to be strong and steely, but you should try, try working with children at a dog. Okay. <laughs> okay. You got me. Okay. <laughs> we have another question here. Hi, my name is Annette Salsgard, and I came here from Sweden to pursue theater, which I have a great passion for. And my question is really to all of you, what advice would you give to someone like me who does not have an agent and it's non-union and non-equity and, <laughs> and that whole spiel? <laughs> God bless you. Thank you. I feel better now. God bless you for trying <laughs> and wanting to do it. I, I, I always tell people that, that, that you, I think you need to find out what it is you do best and then really work on that. Right. Hone that, that special Thing that maybe only you have like how you look and then maybe how you speak and don't don't wash that out make that more so yeah I would think of some particularly if you're from Sweden use it don't try to cover it up that could be very useful for someone to, to reprogram it that way Sweetheart, I pick up the paper, and every, every role you see in there, go up for it. Buy a red wig. Go, go, <laughs> go up for every role. They will eventually right. think you're crazy and let you in, or you will get a chance, but eventually you will get around and you become... They either think you're so dumb and let you in for free, <laughs> or they'll give you a chance. 
I'm serious. Go to open Go call for it. No yeah. one can stop you. We have another question. I'm Cynthia Lopez, and this is directed to whoever this applies to. Now, in between theater gigs, there is the reality of the bills coming in. So what type of survival jobs have you done to get over this dry hump? Right. Or you want and that? Really want I dressed up in a big blue styrofoam fish costume. <laughs> in Seattle and handed out flyers for a fish restaurant. <laughs> that was really That's horrifying. Uh, that was acting. That's good. And I've done all the yeah. I mean, yeah. dishwasher. Margot Evan, I'm an actor, and this question is for Willem Dafoe. In regard to your presentation and your performance, how is it different from theater and your transition into on screen performances? Um, let me understand that. Could you say it again? I'm well, sorry. theater, as we know, is one medium, and yes. film is a different one. And how do you change gears to get yourself involved in both productions? Hmm. Uh, somewhere at the core, it's all pretending. <laughs> um, I don't know. They're, they're different jobs. Uh, the, the, time, uh, the time factor is very different. Uh, the, I don't know. I approach it, any activity, always the same, it seems. Um, okay, let's just talk about the differences. The main difference is theater is basically, you know, first you develop this thing and you get a score and then you have to invest this score, much in the same way that Joel says, you know, you have to live life into it. You have to remake it every night. In film, it's so fragmented and what you do is so mediated that that colors your process so much. I think, um, I don't know, I, you know, each time out the process is different for me. I, I wish I, I feel really... Um, Isn't the scale that something lost, to do this too? Your, your performances are scaled differently for the cinematic or, or not? Uh, not, not necessarily. necessarily. Yeah. True, I think. That's, that's kind of, that's conventional wisdom and 99% of the time it's right, but I think it's not useful to think in those terms because then you're putting a restriction on you that is, is uh, not necessarily going to help you. What about the close-up, the very fact of the close-up? Close-ups are a particular kind of thing, but sometimes... You can play a maniac so wonderfully and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to... I'd like to ask a question, and starting with Paul, and if everyone answers, how do you deal with auditions? Uh, well, I mean, I've, I generally go in there mostly to please myself. I mean, I just want to go in and have a good time most of the time. And I, I try not to worry about it, and I generally go in with the attitude of expecting nothing. So, I mean, you know, I can't be disappointed a lot of times. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I generally really just try to amuse myself, have a good time, that's David. all, you know. That's a good point of view. Yeah. Uh, I have varying attitudes towards auditions. I guess I'm a pretty moody person. When I'm feeling in a good mood and feeling self-confident, then I go and I enjoy myself, and when I don't, I feel like it's just the most horrible situation thing I've ever had to put myself through. So, um, obviously, one is not successful when one goes in with a very negative point of view like that. So uh, it sort of is it up and down. Each one is its own thing for me. Well, don't you? Yeah. I mean, also, I think the the and it's true. I mean, here you become uh, it's yeah. also a, a major uh, performer, actor, and you still are auditioning. What about you? I go in there 
knowing that I'm going to get it. <laughs> I, no, I do. That is my attitude. I go in there, I'm going to get it, and nothing stands in my way. And if I don't get it, they're stupid. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt this. I, I, no, you got I, to ask him now. I, I'm going to ask him, but I have to go now and say that it's been a wonderful seminar, and you've been marvelous people. But I have to finish it by saying goodbye to you and hope that you will watch more of the American Theatre Wings working in the theatre seminars which are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the University of New York right here on 42nd Street where we can call on the wonderful people that we do today. This is the American Theatre Wing and I'm Isabel Stevenson, President of the Wing. Thank you all for being here and thank you especially for this panel.